This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a show and podcast all about screen culture, from movies on the big screen to whatever you're streaming. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and it is very nice to be back on air, finally, after COVID stole my voice, and I'm sorry if I'm a little bit croaky tonight. So on tonight's show, we're doing a special spotlight on environmental cinema, Um, specifically the different ways in which um, films engage with narratives of climate change, uh, the ethics of consuming animals, mass consumption, water shortages and extreme weather events. And to help me explore this, I'm joined by Associate Professor in Film and Screen Studies at Monash and the lead researcher on the Australian Research Council-funded project Remaking the Australian Environment Through Documentary, Film and Television, Belinda Snail. Welcome to Primal Screen, Belinda. Thank you. Great to be here. Um, Belinda, you're also the executive producer of the podcast series Seeing Green and we'll take a deeper dive uh, into that four-part series in in just a moment. Uh, We're also joined by your fellow Monash academic, Dr Simon Troon, who also features in Seeing Green and is assisting with the uh, ARC project. Uh, Welcome to the show, Simon. Hello. Hello. Um, Simon, your doctoral research um, coupled film studies with environmental humanities, so I feel like you're expertly placed for this discussion, Um, and you're currently adapting your research into a book on disaster cinema, ethics and the Anthropocene, so I'm very keen to hear a bit more about that later. Um, So Seeing Green, for those that haven't heard about this podcast, is a four-part pardon me, a four-part podcast series hosted by Triple R's own Dylan Bird from The Grapevine. Um, It's produced by Britta Jorgensen with Therese Davis and Belinda as executive producers. Uh, Belinda, this is one of my favourite podcasts, um, so it's an absolute honour to have you on Primal Screen. So, um, Seeing Green receives funding from the Australian Research Council and it's a collaboration between two universities, Swinburne and Monash, uh, where you're based. So how did this podcast come about? Yeah, so the podcast is, uh, it doesn't receive direct funding from the Australian Research Council, but it's it's one of the outputs of a larger funded project, a three-year project that I'm undertaking with Therese Davis and Chris Healy, who's at uh, University of Melbourne. Uh, The podcast really came about uh, after we'd started work on the project and we kind of saw the opportunity to do something a little bit different beyond Mm. the the usual academic, you know, outputs. We didn't want to just speak to academics Mm. uh, to kind of convey our research and what we were looking at and some of the ideas we were thinking about. So... Yeah, we, we decided to get uh, a team together, so Britta and Dylan helping us out with their, their excellent expertise, uh, and Therese and I have really kind of driven the ideas of the podcast to to kind of offer a way of rethinking Australian cinema, so especially for people who are quite familiar with, with uh, you know, some key films, especially since the 1970s in, in the Australian film revival, so we were really interested in 
uh, bringing some of the ideas we've been thinking about to some really, you know, well, amongst some people, well-known films, but take a really different perspective, a kind of a slightly surprising perspective to our Mm. national cinema. Yeah. I, I absolutely love – I mean, the series features some absolute Aussie classics. Um, you start with Wake in Fright, uh, which I think a lot of pe- listeners will be familiar with. Um, Mad Max, I'm a massive Mad Max fan, so I was very uh, happy to see that made the cut. And you've also got the 1976 uh, Storm Boy and the top-end croc horror Rogue, which I actually re-watched recently in, uh, in lockdown – in not lockdown, in, um, while I was in COVID isolation – um, so it, your series, it's not only just a showcase of these Australian films, but it's also a showcase of researchers from a range of, of really different disciplines, from screen studies, uh, human geography, environmental history, renewable energy, electric vehicles, and conversation, um, conservation psychology. Um, Australian cinema is, is really quite, is such a broad category, and there's so many gems in it. Um, how did you decide on what films you were going to include? Yeah, it was tough. It was a tough decision. <laughs> so the first season, yeah, I think has got some quite obvious films, you know, Mad Max, Wake and Fright. Wake and Fright uh, pretty much kicked off the Australian film revival in the 1970s and landscape was such an essential part of of that kind of revival. Uh, so part of what we wanted to do with the podcast was to step back from the idea of landscape as a as a framed perspective on you know the the continent the and ways of seeing Australian nature and species and uh, we wanted to think about well what is landscape really it's it's about kind of a very active present uh, kind of um, you know non-human world where nature is very vibrant and there's much more going on than just what we see you know, in our very typical framing of, of, of what we think of as landscape. So mm. what the, the speakers do in the podcast, we hope, as well as talking about, you know, a range of things that they're interested in, is bring us um, a sense of what might be outside of the frame, what the kind mm. of materiality of the environment is, and, and how we experience that as viewers in ways mm. that, that we might not even be aware of because we're following along with the story. So kind of you know, mm. but in ways that we're so used to. But, uh, yeah, we're also experiencing the, the Australian kind of um, continent. Yeah. Um, I'm speaking at the moment with Belinda Smale about uh, the podcast series uh, Seeing Green. Um, and we're just chatting a bit about um, the decision of, of how you picked all of these films for for the um, series. Um And as I mentioned, Seeing Green is a podcast series that receives funding from the Australian Research Council. Um, And is this connected to your own ARC project, um, the Remaking the Australian Environment through Documentary Film and Television? Yes, it is. Yep. So the... um, Yep. The project, the the podcast is part of that project, so it's one of the outcomes of the research for for that project. Yeah, and is that quite unusual to have a podcast series attached to a research project like that? I'd like to say yes, but but no, it's not it's not really. I think that uh, in the contemporary university, we're constantly finding ways of trying to get our our ideas out there to the public, or you know, to have impact with our research. So yeah, and because I work in a school of media, mm. I work alongside people that are very good at doing these things. So uh, yeah, we, it's it's more uh, 
it's becoming more and more common to do these kinds of kinds of things. And of course, it's really great fun, and I've really enjoyed, yeah, finding ways to to engage with people. Yeah, I think that's the real challenges, isn't it? With in academia, it's sometimes there's so much amazing research that's being done, and then just being able to bring the public into that space and to be able to share this huge amount of knowledge and and kind of have it more of the conversation as well. I've really enjoyed um, listening back to you. I mean, each episode has um, different specialists on. So it's been, it's a wonderful one, a wonderful podcast to listen back into in case there's a lot of detail in it. Um, We're days away from a federal election and climate change policy, of course, uh, will likely inform how how voters um, act and and what party ultimately is selected. Um, What do you think that film offers to these conversations around climate change, around the environment? Um, What is it specifically about film, do you think, that's important? I think that... uh I mean, film is is one way we can really tap into the way that the the natural environment is imagined. Mm. So we hear a lot, you know, we've heard a lot from scientists. We know already that that the environment is in trouble. Mm. You know, we have stark warnings, we have clear science and clear messages, and we need to pay attention to all of that. But we also need a multidimensional approach that speaks to people in different ways. And we grow up with cinema. It surrounds us. It's our escapism, mm. our entertainment. And, and you know, when we think about the environment, uh, we, we bring, you know, sounds and images to mind. And film, you know, feature film is so powerful in the way that it enters our imagination. It gives us a way of thinking about the different parts, you know, of thinking about Australia and the different mm. parts that we might not visit or at least not regularly. So uh, to kind of dig deep and unpack what these images do and how they're working, a film like Storm Boy, you know, which is one of the films we've looked at, is such an integral part of you know, many people's childhoods. Mm. and uh, I had it on VHS growing up. We used to always be rewatching it. Yeah, I think a lot of people would have that and maybe not thinking about it through that lens of, of, of it as an environmental film. Yeah, and maybe it's not saying, you know, uh, giving you a information about how to go from A to B to fix the climate problem, but it's saying, you know, we're, we're kind of, we're embedded in these histories of knowledge that are really bound up with the environment and the way that we live and, and the world we live in. So just to draw attention to that in subtle ways, there's, there's many people doing really great work on, you know, uh, environmental communication mm. and science communication. Uh, but what we're doing is something quite different and, and it's to say, well, let's look again, let's listen again and, and maybe find um, some imaginative richness in these different films that, that some people know well and some people might be coming to a new and some fun as well I mean Rogue is quite a, a you know it's a crocodile <laughs> film yeah uh, but you know it'll help us think a little bit about the way we you know stereotype particular kinds of animals and uh, yeah and these places tour you know tourist destinations and how they function so it's mm. it's it's adding to yeah, the public sphere of discussion that's already very broad. Yeah, absolutely. And Rogue was actually the week that you were on, Simon. Uh, was that a, is that a favourite of yours, Rogue? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's a really interesting film. I, I can't say it's a favourite, but, you know, I'm quite interested in monster movies, mm. I guess. And so I think you see a lot of 
the the ways of imagining um, monsters get attached to the crocodile mm. in that film. Yeah, um, it's a it's a kind of monstrous, yeah, evil creature in the film. It, yeah, it really is. I was um I was fascinated to watch Rogue because I have been to Catherine Gorge and um the tour guide was actually talking all about it um uh, when when we were there and. It's you're right. The way that this croc gets presented, I mean, it's actually just defending its territory. Where the the characters in the film are in its space, um, and I think that that ties into the way in which we really put ourselves before animals and, and um, sometimes other people. And I really, um, I mean, it's a ridiculous film. You're right, but it's actually interesting thinking about these conversations and these narratives and how they play out, and what impact that then has about how we then perhaps when we do go, you know, to Catherine Gorge, how we then react with when we see these crocodiles in the wild. Um, yeah, it, it's a ridiculous film, but I, 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 yeah, there was a lot to unpack in it, and um, I enjoyed your discussion on on the podcast. <laughs> I am quite fond of it. <laughs> yeah, and you brought up. Um, you also discussed um, uh, Sweetheart, and I, I had, um, I managed to see the body of Sweetheart, which is one of the biggest crocs ever recorded. Um, and uh, it's kind of fascinating. The, the crocs have got such a yeah. There's a there's a real vividness to um, how they get presented in in TV shows um, and film. Uh, I was thinking of that recent TV series Tropo which is on the ABC at the moment and very kind of similar uh, opening scene perhaps with uh, a croc attack. So I can recommend that one <laughs> if you liked Rogue and want some more croc action. Um, it's still well worth checking out. Um, but Belinda, I want to go back to uh, Seeing Green because um, I understand that you're gearing up for a second series of the podcast. Uh, what can listeners expect for the next season? Yeah, so we're currently recording the second season, which will be a little bit longer than the first. The first was really short um, and we were getting a bit of feedback and seeing how the whole idea would go. Uh, the second season, maybe some less predictable films. Uh, we're expanding our kind of scope of what the Australian environment is and how we should think about it. And we're looking at a film called Dead Calm. Oh, yes. Made yeah. in the 1980s. Yeah. And I'm really keen to acknowledge the idea that the ocean is part of the Australian environment. So mm. we've got some, some, yeah, some really interesting people talking on that episode. Uh, I won't say too much more because, yeah. Nice little te <laughs> teaser, though. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're going to include a couple of documentaries, uh, which is my specialty research area. So, yeah, The Back of Beyond, which is a 1950s documentary, possibly the most well-known post-war film made in Australia, which is a really quirky and interesting uh, take on the, um, the the Australian outback. And, yeah, some uh, a, a, a closer look again at species loss with the Tasmanian the film set in Tasmania, The Hunter. Mm. Um, and yes, we're just trying to, you know, make the stars align and uh, think of some more films that, that will really kind of do the things that we want to. And I know you're talking about 2040 later mm. uh, and we're hoping to take a look at that film too. So. Yeah. Well, documentary is fascinating because sometimes with docos, they just don't get the same cinema time uh, as feature-length feature films, uh, feature films. So... 
it, there's it's often just getting the word out about them and i think um you know at one of the great things about the series is being able to spotlight films that maybe people haven't seen and and once you hear a discussion about those films you're like oh i do want to check that out um so uh, belinda thank you so much for joining us on on primal screen um and you can listen back to all four episodes of seeing green uh, via your favorite podcast app and if you'd like more information about the research project that Belinda was referring to, you can head to australianenvironmentonscreen.org. You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flick Ford and special guest Dr. Simon Troon. So on tonight's show, we're spotlighting environmental cinema and we're exploring the different ways in which film can engage with these narratives. Um, and... Earlier tonight, we spoke with um, Belinda Smale about the podcast series Seeing Green. Um, Simon, for this special, uh, you were actually the first person I thought of when I decided on this theme. Um, I, um, you're, you're a researcher at Monash, the same as Belinda, um, and you're in the School of Media, Film and Journalism. You're also assisting with uh, two ARC-funded projects that explore uh, the cultural politics and the environment in a specifically Australian context. And uh, we met several years ago at a film conference and I really love how your research underlines both the potential for film to be a, a, a very powerful political tool um, but also kind of the responsibility of, of telling those narratives mm. Um, and you're currently adapting your doctoral thesis into a book. So before we get into the films, can you give us a sort of brief overview of, of what your thesis was about? Sure, gosh. Uh, so I started thinking about these things. Um, I'm from Christchurch in New Zealand, and we had an earthquake there uh, about a decade ago. Mm. And a about a week after the earthquake that we had, um, there was another disaster in Fukushima in Japan, um, more of an unnatural disaster than a natural disaster maybe. Um, but at that time, uh, I just remember kind of constantly seeing imagery of both of these events. And there was this refrain, um, you know, wow, it's like a movie. It's like something from a movie. Mm. Um, but actually living through an earthquake, I had this really profound sense that it's nothing like a movie. Mm. Um, and that the dominant or some of the dominant kind of ways of imagining environmental events, um, phenomena, transformations, processes that, that we have through films don't really do justice to, to what's actually going on. Mm. And so in the context of climate crisis, I think it's really important to think about like what, what kinds of films and what kinds of filmmaking can do justice to, to what's going on in the world. Mm. Um, so I'm pretty interested in, yeah, responsibility is a, is a really good idea. How can films, I guess, respond to, yeah. to our current, the state of our world at the moment? Mm. And it's interesting, um, I was thinking a bit about the fact that with the pandemic, lots of people, one of the most popular films in the early days of the pandemic uh, was that really terrible uh, Mark Wahlberg film and I've forgotten the name Is of it. Is it Contagion? Yeah. yeah. And it was like number one because I suppose in times of crisis, crises we, are, we do turn to popular culture, to film, maybe music even, as something of a guide um, to, to make sense. Um, and I think that's what really stood out. And tonight we, we're going to sort of um, 
cover a lot. So it's a pretty weird, um, weird mix we've got. We've got action <laughs> films. We've Sorry got docos. We've got some drama, fantasy, sci-fi. Um, where should we start? What would you like? What film would you like to kick off? Let's off start with? talking about disaster movies. Yeah, let's get into it. Okay, so one of the films you've picked for us to discuss is um, Brad Payton's San Andreas from 2015. It's a film that's currently streaming on Stan. Uh, what's the setup of San Andreas? San Andreas, so directed by Brad Payton, I think arguably the, the more important figure is Dwayne Johnson. Yes, the star the, a.k.a. The, the Rock. The Rock. Um, <laughs> San Andreas is, uh, the name comes from the San Andreas Fault line, so it's about a massive earthquake, the big one, um, that kind of devastates California. Um, it's mostly set in San Francisco. Uh, but it, so the earthquake happens and, and Dwayne Johnson's character, Ray, I think is his name, it's about his kind of travails in the aftermath, immediate aftermath of this massive earthquake uh, to try and unite his family, uh, his mm. daughter and his estranged ex-wife, uh, there's always an ex-wife in these um, disaster films. I recently watched Dante's Peak and Twister. Twister has a lot of divorce <laughs> yep. in it. I yep. don't know why they couple those together, but they do. Well, uh, so I think, I mean, I, I, it's a really good observation. Like, it's really common. And I think that these films are not really, I mean, they are about environmental things, but they're not really about the environment. These catastrophes are just kind of a, a platform for the main character, usually a, a man, a middle-aged man, yeah. uh, to kind of take centre stage and save the world. And a big part of that is reuniting the family unit, you mm. know, the, the nuclear family. So in San Andreas, uh, Dwayne Johnson's ex-wife has a new partner who is uh, at the midway point of the film is really unceremoniously taken out by a shipping crate that falls off of a ship as a wave is kind of tearing apart the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, so he's out of the picture and then the, the kind of nuclear family can reunite again. Um, so it's really, yeah, the, the natural disasters or unnatural disasters in these films are really just platforms for um, the hero to, mm. to come in and fix everything. Mm. And I, um, I was doing a bit of digging on this film and I heard that they brought in um, a man called Thomas Jordan, who's a professor and director of the Southern California Earthquake Centre. And they basically said, can you read through the script and <laughs> let us know if it's plausible? Um, so apparently in interviews, The Rock and, and Brad Payton, the director, uh, insist that the science is accurate. Um, however, Jordan is, is quoted as saying, I gave them free advice, some of which they took, but much of which uh, they didn't. <laughs> um, I think some of the, I mean, it's a Hollywood film, but um, some of the criticisms that um, this specialist had um, issue with was that magnitude nine um, would be too big for San Andreas and it wouldn't have produced this big tsunami. And I, I thought about what you said earlier about what inspired you to to do your research project and this idea of it being believable. Um, do you remember much discussion around that when the film came out about the believability of the film? I do think at the time there was a kind of emphasis on, I mean, people know that there's a massive fault line, 
running along, basically along California, right? Mm. So, and, and people, people know, or there's this consensus that it's, you know, they're due for a big one. And I remember this idea of like the big one, the, the big earthquake that it, it could happen any day, mm. um, being something that was pushed at the time the film came out. Yeah. Um, but in terms of like, these films are all about spectacles. So yeah. <laughs> however big it would be in real life, if you can have it bigger in the film, then that's obviously what they'll do. Right? Yeah. It, it's the bigger, the better, the more uh, devastation, the more um, kind of, wide shots of city skylines falling to the ground, the the better. Mm. And I think that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Um, what different films offer. And I was thinking um, about the TV series Fires that uh, came out, I think it was early this year, or maybe it was late last year. We did review it on the show and it was all about Black Summer. Um, and because it was made relatively quite recent, really, from when it happened, you know, that was 2019, um, that Black Summer kicked off and there was so much um, – it seemed a very accurate representation. Obviously, I didn't personally experience it but it, it didn't go for that spectacle. There was, of course, the, the intrigue of that TV show was really on the narrative side of it and the the, inter, the relationships between the characters um, and just the shocking devastation of, of that event. But yeah, you're right. It, it, San Andreas, I, I think there's there's obviously some of it is anchored to a certain truth, um, but it also has another um, motive, which is to entertain. Um, I know that um, before the film came out, there was quite a devastating earthquake in Nepal um, and they the marketing campaign actually was shifted um, in response to that, um, to include sort of how to prepare for an earthquake and, and kind of how to help mm. with with some of the relief efforts, um, which I thought was an interesting decision. Yeah, that from, is really interesting. Yeah. I didn't actually know that. Um, but it, it sort of doesn't surprise me. Films like San Andreas always walk a line. Mm. You know, they, they can be seen as kind of exploitative, I think, in, in some ways mm. uh, and anyone who's lived through a natural disaster knows that there is like it's a dramatic thing mm. it's a dramatic thing to go through uh, and yeah kind of indulging that drama for the sake of a cinematic spectacle is yeah not always a good thing to do mm. um, I think with San Andreas though because it's so outrageous um, and it's such a you know like Way back, Susan Sontag has written about this kind of joy of, of watching things get smashed up. Yeah. Um, and it leans into that so heavily. Mm. I Actually, I have to admit, um, I do sometimes really crave watching disaster films and especially those mass destruction disaster films. And I suppose at the core there's a very human tendency to – something that you're scared of it's almost like getting a, a how would you act you know how people kind of come up with their like zombie plan of what they would do it's that sort of thinking I think of that sort of psychology behind it of how would you prepare for this but there's also yeah like like Sontag argues that kind of almost weird release of of kind of destruction and you get to fantasize about that in in the cinema totally and in terms of like how how I would act in it you know in San Andreas 
Dwayne Johnson's character is like an ex-military guy who's ripped, uh, very strong guy. In the film, he kind of shows his mastery at every turn. Mm. He flies a plane. He he pilots a boat, flies a helicopter. He drives a pickup (laughs) truck everywhere. (laughs) He's got an answer for everything that, that the disaster throws at him. So really it's about, you know, yeah, he's the, he's the he's the guy who can tame the elements. Like he can overcome mm. this m- massive catastrophe. He can manage the in- the environment. You know, he's in a plane in the sky. He's in a boat in the in the water after mm. San Francisco gets flooded. So whatever the elements, whatever happens, he's got the the skills to kind of take care of it. And I, I think you, you touched upon a really important concept there of mastery over the environment. And I suppose that's something that with, if you take into consideration our, our current um, inaction on, on climate change, it's this assumption that it's something that belongs to us. And um, I suppose, yeah, I mean, that, that's a maybe <laughs> too, too deep a topic to go into. What, what, um, what other action film have you got? Lined up for I noticed that you put on another disaster film, which is Moonfall. I haven't seen this, and you actually advised me not to bother. <laughs> yeah, well, I think a lot of people haven't seen it, which is okay. Uh, it came out this year, and it's been a massive flop. Yeah. Um, it won't surprise me if in five years' time people have seen it. Um, disaster movies tend not to do all that well. Um, they're definitely not a kind of critically acclaimed genre, mm. but they certainly have an appeal. And, you know, th- I wanted to talk about Moonfall because it's directed by Roland Emmerich, who uh, directed Independence Day, yeah. the Day After Tomorrow, 2012. He's kind of the Hollywood's disaster auteur, I think. <laughs> um, yes. And lots of his films have have not done all that well, but mm. he keeps getting money to make them. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting that it has become his brand. Um, I don't know. I actually didn't know Moonfall. I somehow missed it. Um, can you give <laughs> us a bit of an overview of, of what it's about? Sure. So Moonfall is about um, <laughs> the moon falling <laughs> like onto our planet. Right. Um, and and there's, reason, there's a reason why the moon falls onto the planet that has to do with, you know, it's just bonkers. And you can't really say it without spoiling the film completely. Yeah. Um, but why I think it's relevant to a conversation about the environment and, and film is because, firstly, when the moon kind of gets closer to Earth, its orbit shifts, um, you get the tides change, uh, so you get tidal waves everywhere. Um, there's earthquakes everywhere. Uh, so it's really, that's, it kind of causes natural disasters. Mm. Um, so you get the same sort of vision, the same imagery that you get in San Andreas of just like, you know, devastation. Mm. Uh, and it's in California as well. Um, a lot of disaster movies are set in California. Yeah, why is that? It's funny how like you just see a repeat of those. Yeah, <laughs> and, a, and a, I think it's in White Noise, Don DeLillo novel. Uh, mm. It says Californians invented the concept of lifestyle and so they deserve <laughs> whatever is coming to them. That's a wonderful quote. I've actually got a short clip of um, Moon, uh, Moonfall, which I'll play now and hopefully it will come through nice and clear. Billions of years ago, your ancestors were once a thriving civilization in a distant part of the galaxy. They were so advanced, they expanded from their home planet 
into habitats they built in space. All social conflicts have been resolved, and wars were only memories of long bygone times. I really wasn't sure how to take the tone of Moonfall. Um, it's yeah, sort of. It, how has it been? How has it been received? Pretty poorly. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's not been popular. I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> I think the fact that you haven't heard of it really speaks to yeah, a lot of people. Yeah, haven't. that's true. <laughs> Well, it's currently available on YouTube if people do want to check it out. It came out earlier this year. I obviously missed it. Probably a few of, a few of you did as well. Um, one film that um, I've missed but I am very, very keen to see is um, Michael Sanosky's Pig, which came out last year. It was on a lot of favourite films of uh, last year. Um, tell us about this film. Pig is, um, it is a really wonderful film, I think, uh, and it's a little bit, difficult to describe it without making it sound kind of corny almost it's it's about uh, a man who lives in the wilderness in Oregon and has a pig a truffle hunting pig and uh, someone steals his pig (laughs) so he has to go and and try to get the pig back it's um it has got Nick Cage we have to to mention that I feel like that's a Yeah, he's um he's wonderfully cast in this. Um, I did watch a short clip of it today, um, and it's a he's a he's kind of fascinating. I'll see whether I can play a little clip because um some people may not have seen this, and I, I think it's one worth checking because out. You always overcook the pasta. <laughs> ah ah, now this is excellent. This is a uh, a 2012 Pinot from just 20 miles away. So do you know about the pig? Why, why do you want a pig? It's my pig. Oh, okay. That, that, that's great. That's a, that's, a, that's a great business. It's, a, it's, a, it's an expanding industry. It's, it's... Someone stole it. <sighs> so it's a wonderful kind of premise. Um, a while back there was a documentary actually done on truffle hunting and the name of it escapes me. Um, but I would recommend that as a wonderful companion to this film. I'll, I'll put it up on our socials afterwards when I recall the name. Uh, do, you, do you remember this um, one that came out? It was a French documentary. Um, I don't remember it. I'm I sure someone will message Victor me. Kos- 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 or Kos- I can't remember his name. had a film about a kind of family of pigs. Oh, wonderful. The, the name of that? I don't recall. I, I hate another, this when there's like one where you're trying. <laughs> another pig film. And actually... Talking of, of pig films, um, oh, super pig films, maybe we'll say, um, Bong Joon-ho's Okja from 2017. Now, this was a film that I was in tears watching. Um, tell us about this one. Uh, Okja is also about, and I think it's a great kind of pairing with pig, it's also a film about uh, someone who has, a, I guess, a pet pig, a pig companion yeah. uh, who was stolen. Um, but Okja is a little bit more of a sort of science fictional, um, I think it's set in like a parallel present where um, super pigs have been genetically engineered in order to feed uh, humans. And there's a, it's, it's a young girl who has grown up with a super pig, a giant pig, uh, and it's, the pig is, is Okja, 
is taken back by the company that genetically engineered the pigs so that it can be um, it goes to the meatworks basically. Yeah, <laughs> I um I found this a really hard watch in parts. I was surprised by how emotionally affected I was by this film. I read that the um, Okja's face was um, designed to look like a manatee. Mm. And I thought that was really interesting how we, we've got all these references of, of animals and this happens all the time, unfortunately, in, in um, campaigns to look after animals. The cuter they are, the more likely we are to be invested in protecting their survival and yeah. environment. And um, the first 10 minutes of Okja is just you watch this pig and this girl having like a wonderful time together um it's kind of very sentimental and it's Bong Joon-ho directed the movie you know that it's kind of setting you up for a yeah. big <laughs> it's, yeah it's a whoosh <laughs> whoosh indeed I, I it also features Tilda Swinton and Jake Gyllenhaal um both really wonderfully cast and both amazingly eccentric in this film um, I was very glad that you included this one. So on tonight's show, we're talking all about environmental cinema and lots of different examples that you've given us, Simon, of films that engage with ideas around climate change, disaster, um, all sorts of water shortages, all through these very different genres. Um, I think when we think of us environmental cinema, the first thing that comes to mind, at least for myself, is docos and we haven't talked about any docos yet. Uh, you have picked out two for us to talk about, though. Uh, Damon Gamow's climate change doco from 2019 called 2040. I think a lot of people will be familiar with this film. Uh, what's the premise? So 2040 is, I think it's really about climate adaptation. And um, viewers, we kind of follow Damon Gamow as he highlights solutions to climate uh catastrophe and environmental problems so he's sort of envisioning how what things might look like in 2040 if mm. we invest in these solutions and kind of chart a path away from <laughs> catastrophe yeah I feel like this is a documentary that definitely got added to a lot of uh school curriculum uh <laughs> screenings um because it's very digestible um uh, People may be familiar with um, Gamo from uh, that Sugar film, which was, I think, his debut. Perhaps he may have done a few other things. Um, they're they're both documentaries that have have nearly always gone straight onto TV as well, like after their cinema release. And I think that does speak to the accessibility of this information. There, there does seem to be with films that focus on on important events and they have a a, a responsibility, like we said before. Sometimes it's that thing of making things digestible. Um, I don't know whether this is a film that will be to everyone's taste, though. What are you, what are your thoughts on Twenty Forty? Yeah, well, and yeah, Twenty Nineteen. So it came out at the time uh, or in the same year as the school climate strikes as well. Mm, yeah. Um, I do think it's made to be, yeah, easily digestible and and pleasant. Like, it's a very positive film. Um, it's extremely expository. So we just kind of follow Damon Gamow as a presenter, um, not necessarily an expert type of figure, but he kind of takes us through these problems and introduces us to solutions. So it's very solutions-oriented and very, yeah, positive. Well, that's a rare 
uh, quality sometimes. I remember watching a documentary on fisheries and um, it was somehow more depressing than the piano, which I just watched prior. <laughs> and I, I thought that was – oh, sorry, not the piano. That's um, – what is it called? The Pianist. Um, the piano, I mean, is, isn't depressing. Yeah, it's also. a beautiful, beautiful film. Um, <laughs> the Pianist, which is a depressing film. Uh, and I just this fisheries documentary, it really got me down and I thought – there is that tendency to people sometimes avoid it, particularly at the cinema. People kind of go, oh, I don't want to watch this really heavy film. So perhaps that was the thinking behind it to make it quite lighthearted and to focus on strategies. Totally. I think it's, yeah, because it is a, it's very serious stuff. Mm. But I think it's about strategies and really this idea of like plotting a path out of the worst possible scenario. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to sum it up. And Another documentary that I actually wasn't aware of and I'm so glad that you brought this to my attention and I know we were speaking with Belinda earlier tonight about how um, Seeing Green, the podcast series, was able to draw people's attention to, to films that people may not, may not have seen yet and this was definitely one I hadn't seen. So this is a fracking documentary that um, – received some funding from environmental activist SEED, um, Indigenous Youth Climate Network Mob, and it's called Water is Life. Um, it's quite hard to get hold of in terms of um, down usual channels, but it is on Vimeo to, yeah. to stream. So or just on SEED Mob's website. Oh, is it? Okay, yeah. I didn't know that. Okay, yeah. So tell us about Water is Life. So it's a, sh- it's a shorter documentary, but um, I think it's really important to bring up a film like that together with 2040. So 2040, um, one of my maybe, I guess, frustrations with 2040 is it's about the future. And there's so there's questions of whose future. Mm. And it's posing climate crisis and, you know, environmental catastrophe as something that's impending. Mm. Where in actual fact, um, climate crisis has arrived for Mm. lots of people. And lots of people have been living with pretty extreme environmental... um, degradation and uh so this film water is life um and i should shout out to belinda and therese davis as well who i found out about this film through uh it's about um a group in the northern territory uh, indigenous group uh it's made by a seed mob a youth climate network um activist group and it's a, it's about fracking it's part of a campaign against fracking mm. and so uh, yeah, just th- it's a totally different um, kind of film to 2040 because it's it, it includes a lot of testimony. It's drawing attention to real things that are happening to mm. real people. Um, and it highlights a campaign. It's made as part of a campaign. Um, so it goes to land rights as well mm. and to indigenous environmental knowledge, which um, is a, you know, it's a different kind of knowledge to the kinds of knowledge that 2040 tries to to show us. And I think for a lot of people, um, you know, fracking has been part of the conversation for a long time, but um, I thought it was really interesting that they were talking about the fact that since fracking began in in that town in 2006, that they've been plagued by all these health conditions that, that just keep getting worse. And what I didn't quite understand is that fracking um, sends all of these dangerous chemicals into the groundwater and it's it's the storing of the waste on the surface that's polluting the drinking water. And they're, they're communities that already um, don't have water security. And I, I just thought that was really – you're right, it's very 
present day. It's very there's an urgency to to the documentary. I would recommend everyone to check that out. Um, and because of the complex nature of that, to do with all the many ways in which a lot of Indigenous knowledge has just been um, not treated with with the respect it deserves. And I think that the the abuse of the land is, is kind of um, through the, through practices like fracking have been one of the main ways that we've seen that. Um, definitely well worth checking out um, Water uh, is Life on Vimeo. Um, that is a whirlwind of recommendations and I feel like there's a lot that we've covered tonight. Um, let's just have a quick break. I'm going to, um, we do have, I have to announce that we do have a few subscriber screenings that are coming up. So if you would like a double pass, um, we, it's going to be screened on Tuesday, the 31st of May at Cinema Nova at 6.30. We have a, you can win a double pass to a hero. Um, and we also have, <laughs> back to backs, we've got lots of subscriber screenings. I'm going to be busy for the next few months. Uh, we also have a subscriber screening of Mothering Sunday and that's on Tuesday the 24th um, on Cinema, at Cinema Nova. Um, please head to rrr.org.au and um, be in the draw to, to win a double pass for that. Uh, you're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flick Ford and my special, special guest for tonight, Dr. Simon Troon and Associate Professor Belinda Smale. Um, earlier tonight, uh, we did talk about the wonderful podcast series, Seeing Green, and you can subscribe and listen back to all four episodes of Seeing Green via your favourite podcast app. And if you'd like to know a bit more about the research project that's connected to that podcast, you can head to australianenvironmentonscreen.org. And as part of tonight's spotlight on cinema and the environment, we reviewed a whole host of films, um, so thank you, Simon, for all of these recommendations, or not necessarily recommendations, but starting points, let's say. <laughs> um, so what did we cover? We had um, Michael Sanofsky's Pig from 2021, which is currently streaming on Stan. We had Bong Joon-ho's Okja from 2017, which is on Netflix. Uh, Brad Payton's San Andreas from 2015, which is on Stan. Uh, Roland Emmerich's 2022 disaster film Moonfall, which is on YouTube. Uh, Damon Gamow's Climate Change Doco 2040, which is on Docplay and Amazon Prime. And the fracking documentary from environmental activists uh, called Water is Life. Um, an absolute uh, amazing whirlwind of uh, films that we covered. I'm so thankful to have both of you on tonight. Uh, it was a huge help. Um you can listen back if you missed any of the interview or the chat, uh, the discussion of those films. You can listen back online at rrr.org.au or you can subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast um, through whatever your favourite app um, is. So a big thank you to Belinda and Simon. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us. Yes, yeah, it's been great. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website.